Father, thank you for the gift it is to fellowship with your people. It is such a beautiful thing that not only do you save us, but you save us into a community. You bring us into a family. Uh, you join us with other sinners who are uh, called and redeemed so that we might fellowship together, worship together, grow together, minister together. I pray that as we spend time reflecting on your word this morning, that our love for you would be strengthened, that our hunger for your word would be increased, and that we would um, become better students of your word, that we might know you and worship you as you deserve. So I pray for your help and that you would bless our time this morning. Amen. So we are starting a new uh, Sunday School series today, and it is a Sunday School series that will probably take us over a year to complete, uh, because we're going to cover each book of the Bible, and we're going to roughly pace ourselves at one book per week. Um, it's a little bit of a Route 66 approach, where we're going to drive down the highway, stop and look at the sites along the way, and the goal of this class is twofold. One, we want to give a number of men in our church an opportunity to teach. They have gifts, and they are seeking to hone and, and sharpen those gifts, and we want to deploy them. But uh, another reason we have chosen to do this class, even though we did something like this a few years ago, um, is that one of the things we prize at this church is God's Word. Uh, we believe what um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we, as, as your pastors, want to equip you, we want to uh, uh, train you by helping you to read the Bible. And some of that is hopefully caught on Sunday morning. Uh, when we do expository preaching, where we try to go verse by verse and give the explanation of the text, we want you to learn how to study the Bible for yourself. That's the reason why we just spent the last few months going through how to study the Bible. We want you to read and study the Bible for yourself. And one of the things that I think keeps people from benefiting from their own personal reading is just that some aspects of the Bible are very unfamiliar. Uh, if I were to put you on the spot and ask you, what is the theme of Obadiah? You might go, is that in the old? that's in the Old Testament, right? If I were to ask you um, um, about uh, who is the author of the book of Hezekiah? Some of you were thinking, okay, it's probably Hezekiah. Some of you are going, that's not even a book in the Bible. That's a trick question. There is no book, Hezekiah. So there's different parts of Scripture we just may be less familiar with. So what we hope to do is each week take a book of the Bible, explain uh, who the author is, what the background is, how that book is structured, and sort of give you <clears throat> a, a roadmap so that when you go read it for yourself, it's, it's a little bit familiar. You sort of know your way around and you're able to better read and understand God's word for yourself. So we want to give each book that sort of attention. Um, so my task um, is to introduce kind of as a whole the Old Testament this morning. Um, I won't be uh, teaching on any specific book. This is sort of just the, the kickoff. And then next week we'll start the book of Genesis. Um, and, and each one of these weeks we're not going to be able to give an exhaustive teaching. Um, in fact, the teachers who teach these classes, I promise you, will be frustrated. They'll be frustrated because they've read this book, studied this book, and there's all these things in it they won't have time to share. But they will be able to give you, hopefully, a compass, a roadmap, so that when you go read it for yourself, you can be helped and encouraged. So I'm going to just give us a, an introduction and a little bit of an overview today of the Old Testament, <clears throat> which I'm eager to do. So I'd like to just start with this question, why study the Old Testament? 
why should you read the Old Testament? Uh, Not just maybe the few books that are familiar and exciting to you, but all of it. Why study the Old Testament? Uh, A number of years ago, there was a famous preacher who gave this word of advice that he felt that the church needed to unhitch from the Old Testament. I disagree uh, for a number of reasons, but he felt like emphasizing the Old Testament was counterproductive, Um, and he tried to explain what he meant by that, and it actually just got worse the the more he he talked about it, but uh, we really want to encourage people to study and to read the Old Testament. Why? Why should we do that? Well, a number of reasons. Number one, it is God's word. The Old Testament is God's word, and it is therefore on equal footing with the New Testament. We do not privilege or prioritize the New Testament over the Old Testament. To do so is to take God's word and put it against God's word, which makes no sense. Uh, There's a a tendency that some may have to say, you know, I really like the red letters in my Bible. They're more important, more authoritative than the, the black letters in my Bible. But we think the words of Jesus, the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament, all of it, like we read earlier from 2 Timothy 3, all of it is breathed out by God. All of it, including the Old Testament, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. All of it is necessary if we are going to become complete or mature and equipped for every good work. So we study the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament because it is God's word. Second reason is the Old Testament teaches us about God. It is a theological revelation. As you read the Old Testament, you get a portrait of who God is because he's revealing himself on every page. He's revealing his power. He's revealing his plans. He's revealing his promises. He's demonstrating his purposes. He's showing his character and his attributes on every page. So if we really love God and we really want to know God, then we will read and study the Old Testament. This is beneficial for us. It's for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, These things, referring to the Old Testament, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We need the Old Testament because it teaches us about God. Uh, There's a, a, a line of thought out there, and maybe you've heard something like this, that the Old Testament is shadow. And the New Testament is light. Or in the Old Testament, the truth is concealed. And in the New Testament, God's truth is revealed. And sort of pitting the New Testament against the Old Testament. I think we should reject that. The Old Testament is not shadow. At least it doesn't describe itself that way. The Old Testament describes itself as light. Psalm 119 says, your word is what? It's a lamp to my feet. It is light to my path. This imagery of the Old Testament being shadow is just not how the Old Testament speaks about itself. The Old Testament is full of revelation. It's not concealing truth. It is revealing it. Thus says the Lord. It is a pattern we find over and over again in the Old Testament. We see God's purposes in demonstrating his power, for example, in the book of Exodus. And it's why? So that they will know that I am the Lord. God is revealing himself, and if we're going to know God, if we're going to understand theology, doctrine, and know the one who made us and whom we worship, we need to read the Old Testament. It teaches us about God. It's a necessary theological revelation. If you ignore the Old Testament, it will be to your detriment. You will have a deficient view 
of who God is because you're missing a massive chunk of his revelation. The third reason to study the Old Testament is that it teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about man. It tells us our history, where we came from, our origin, what our nature is, why we are the way we are. And we can observe history in the Old Testament, and it's like looking in a mirror. We look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and we see some of ourselves, don't we? We look at the people at the Tower of Babel, and we see some of ourselves. We look at Israel grumbling in the wilderness, and we see some of ourselves. We look at uh, the time period of the judges, and we see human nature and all of its ugliness on display. We look at this blessed nation that continually turns away from God to worship idols, and, and we're learning something about what's wrong with the human heart, that it is stony and it is dead. And that we need a new one. So the Old Testament teaches us much about ourselves, about mankind. And therefore, the Old Testament reveals our need. It reveals our need for the gospel. It reveals our need for redemption. People who don't study the Old Testament will have a deficient view of humanity. A faulty understanding of themselves. An additional reason to study the Old Testament is it teaches us about God's plan of redemption. If you don't understand the Old Testament, if you don't understand the storyline, what went wrong, God's promises, how everything got to where it is, if you just pop into Matthew or Luke, you won't understand what's going on. You won't understand the significance of Jesus' coming. You won't recognize God's plan in action because you're jumping into the tail end of this plan and you missed all of the prequel in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prepares us for Christ. The Old Testament promises us Christ. The Old Testament, in many ways, describes Christ, describes what he will be like, what he will accomplish, what his kingdom and his rule will entail. In fact, the Old Testament glorifies Christ. So if you love Jesus, and if you want to know Jesus, if you want to glorify Jesus and believe fully in all of the riches of who Jesus is, then you should read the Old Testament. It teaches us about God's sovereign plan of redemption. And then a final reason, and it's really not a final, we could probably make 50 of these. These are just ones I thought would be helpful today, but a final reason this morning uh, to study the Old Testament is that without it, you actually cannot understand the New Testament. It's estimated that there's over a thousand quotations in the New Testament of Old Testament Scripture. How do we understand the the impact that the New Testament authors intended those quotes to have? Well, only if we know where they came from. I don't know if you've ever been around someone. Maybe you, some of you guys, when you first got married, you started spending time with your in-laws, with a new family, and they're quoting all these movies, and they have all these inside jokes, and you have no idea what they're talking about half the time. You sort of have to learn the language. Then you go watch, you know, that old movie that they all love. Now I understand. Now I know... All of these quotations that you're using. Now I get all the inside jokes because I know the story of your grandpa or whatever it may be. There's a a learning curve when we come into a new family to learn all of that background material that shapes their speech and how they communicate. If we're going to come into Jesus' family in the New Testament, we sort of have to understand all these quotations and the source material that all of this comes from. So there's probably over a thousand quotations and that number would at least triple if we counted all the illusions, things that are hints and sort of subtle references and not outright quotations. Um, But it's not just the quotations, it's also the language and the imagery of the New Testament is sourced often directly in the Old Testament. For example, what does it mean 
in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest. Why should I care about that? What effect is that supposed to have on me? What is that telling me about Jesus and his ministry? Well, that only makes sense if I know what the priesthood was, what a high priest did, what his job description was, and how all that fit in the Old Testament. Only then can I understand what the New Testament is referring to. And we could go on with other examples. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of Man? Why was it significant that Jesus uh, was crucified at Passover? Why is that important? How do we understand all of the fulfillment language in the Gospel of Matthew? How should we understand all of the, the vivid imagery in the book of Revelation? Because so much of that is sourced in the Old Testament. How should we understand the argument of Paul in Romans 9 through 11 when he starts talking about Jacob and Esau? You see, we have to be familiar with the language and imagery of the Old Testament to understand the teaching of the New Testament. So it's the story that continues, it's the language that is used, it's even quotations and prophecies that are fulfilled that shows us that those two pieces of white paper in between your Old and New Testament, they represent about 400 years, but they do not represent different authors, different purposes, or different values. While the scripture is written by many men over a span of thousands of years, there is a unified authorship. This is God's word, God's revelation, and there's a continuity with it. So if you don't read and study the Old Testament, you will not understand the New Testament. So I hope that motivates you to read your Bible and to study these Old Testament books. If you've not experienced that before, there is great blessing in it. As you read it, uh, you will come to know more about God, more about yourself. You'll understand the beauty of his plan of redemption and your New Testament will also just start to come alive. You'll start to see things in 3D that you never noticed before. So I hope you're motivated, and I hope you're excited to come listen to lessons on Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Obadiah and Song of Solomon and Ezekiel and Second Chronicles and all the different places will be over the next year. So what is the structure of the Old Testament? Now we're getting into sort of the meat and potatoes for today. This is a little bit of an overview. What is the structure of the Old Testament? Testament. This is very simple, um, but I know some people may not have grown up in church. You might be a new believer, so I'd like to just cover it. Um, the first five books of the Bible are what we call the Pentateuch. It's the five books of the law, the, book of, the books of Moses, as they are often called. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is authored by Moses, and it's a foundational document for the nation Israel. In it, we find the origin of the human race and the origin of God's purposes of redemption and the origin of the nation Israel. So we have those five books at the beginning. The Old Testament also contains uh, many historical books, books that narrate for us the development of God's plans over time. It's stories. We love these books. It tells us of David and Joshua and Elijah and all of these different narratives that we see things unfolding in real time. These are the historical books. It records for us the history, especially of the nation Israel and her kings and her victories and her failures and all of that. Now, a good chunk of the Old Testament is also poetry. Uh, Job, Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. Uh, this is poetry. Stephen touched on this genre in his, uh, his class on how to study the Bible. Um, and, in, and finally, we have uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. Much of it is preaching to people 
uh, bringing God's word to bear. It is a prophetic retelling of the law, applying it to the modern situation. And, but mingled in with this prophetic utterance is often of foretelling of the future. Here's what God is going to do. So this is sort of how the Old Testament is structured. We have these different components that are joined together, and throughout the years they've been arranged in different sequences. Um, the, the, the Jewish Bible has it in one sequence. We have kind of this traditional uh, sequence in our English Bibles today. You can also order them canonically, sort of in order historically, but this is roughly how the Old Testament is structured with these different uh, types of literature. So what's the storyline of the Old Testament? And I think this is helpful as you read your Bible to understand where you are in the unfolding of the drama. Well, the Old Testament, as you know, starts off with a creation story. It tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It gives us the origins of the, both the material, material universe and also the origin of the human race. This creation story very quickly turns south, though, as mankind falls, and God has to deal with that. But we have the creation story, the beginning of the story. Uh, following the creation story, for a, a period of time, we see God dealing with individuals. He deals with Enoch, and he deals with uh, Noah, and he, he deals with people on this individual basis. But very quickly, we see that he selects one individual, a man named Abraham. And this kicks off for us, which is a big chunk of Genesis, the patriarchal narratives. The patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we have the, the life and story of Joseph included there as well. In the patriarchs, we see that God is responding not just to the needs of these individual men and their families. God's dealing with the patriarchs is actually God's response to a world that is in need. God is calling Abraham, choosing Abraham, and blessing Abraham so that through this one man and his family, he can bring blessing to all the families of the earth. We see God's redemptive plan starting to pick up speed in the patriarchal narratives. Following the patriarchal narratives, we get into the history of Israel. And this is really uh, the rest of the Old Testament. And we see God's furtherance of his plan of redemption through this one man, through his family, which eventually becomes a nation. So God's chosen people, the nation Israel, is a vehicle through which he intends to bring the blessing of salvation through Jesus to the entire world. And the history of Israel can sort of be subdivided to a number of sections. You have what we could call the pre-kingdom era. You have uh, the exodus from Egypt. You have their wandering in the wilderness. You have the time period of the conquest where Joshua is leading the nation of Israel uh, into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they're driving out those inhabitants. And then we have following that the time period of the judges, where it's not an organized geopolitical nation. Everything is, is very, um, uh, it feels disconnected. Uh, there's even civil war going on. And we see that morally everything is very disconnected as well during the time period of the judges. But this is all what you could call sort of a pre-kingdom era for the nation Israel. But we know that God eventually united the kingdom and he gave them a king. We see this united kingdom period is the reign of Saul followed by David and his son Solomon. Through these three kings who each ruled for a number of decades um, and they experienced great prosperity and blessing during this time period that the kingdom is united. Twelve tribes under one king uh, following their leadership. David establishes the capital city 
in Jerusalem. Solomon builds a temple there, and the kingdom is united in its worship, united in a military sense, united in a political sense. That's Saul, David, and Solomon. But as you know, that is followed by a split. Uh, Solomon's son listened to bad advice. He did not have good policy, and the kingdom was torn. Uh, It was divided into northern ten tribes, which retained the title Israel, which were separate from the southern two tribes, uh, which called themselves by the name Judah, who retained the capital in Jerusalem. And for a number of centuries, these two um, kingdoms coexisted side by side. Sometimes they were friends and they cooperated together. Sometimes they fought wars against each other. It depended on who was king at the time and whose kids and sisters were marrying who. And, and there's all of this political intrigue. But this is the time of the divided kingdom. During this time, we have many prophets who come to the scene. And they prophesy to the nation, warning them um, that there is uh, judgment that is coming. And eventually, this divided kingdom is taken into exile. Uh, the northern ten tribes are conquered by the Assyrians. And then uh, a number of years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken by, Babylon, taken by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're taken into exile. They're not in the land. They don't have a king They're not experiencing God's blessing. But even during this time, we see God is at work. He's still fulfilling his promises. He's preserving his people. He's moving behind the scenes, even when it doesn't seem like he's there, to restore his people. At the end of this time of exile, we see a partially restored kingdom. And I use the word partially um, very intentionally. It's not a restoration because not everyone is back in the land. The land does not have the same borders it used to have. And the temple that they rebuild looks nothing like the temple they used to have. In fact, the old men weep and they cry when it's built because they remember the glory of the former days. They'd been in exile for 70 years and God does bring them back. But it it gives us a picture at the end of of, um, the Old Testament as God continues to send his prophets to this partially restored kingdom. And even as they're led in in certain times of restoration and revival by Ezra and Nehemiah, there's still a sense that these people are longing for and waiting for a fuller, greater, and total restoration. And that's what brings us to the New Testament. So, So that's what they're looking for when Jesus comes. And why many are so excited about who Jesus might be and what it is that he might accomplish But as you all know from reading the New Testament, sometimes people didn't fully understand the mission of Christ and exactly how he was going to restore and exactly when he would bring about that restoration. But this is a a sort of very high-level overview of the storyline of the Old Testament. We have the creation narratives, patriarchal narratives, and then the history of Israel, both in its sort of less organized pre-kingdom phase Uh, the united kingdom, a divided kingdom, a kingdom in exile, and then a partial restoration, waiting for the coming of their Messiah, waiting for the fuller restoration and the fulfillment of God's promises. So a final sort of question I'd like to ask and then try to answer is what is the key theological framework of the Old Testament? Now that's maybe not a question you've asked before. Maybe you've asked, I wonder what the structure of the Old Testament is. Maybe you've tried to figure out and sort of talk through in your own mind, what's the basic storyline of the Old Testament? Perhaps you haven't considered the key theological framework. 
What is the scaffolding that sort of holds this whole thing together? What's the connective tissue that, that explains why the story moves in the direction it does? Why God acts the way he does? Why he guides history the way he does? Well, there's a theological framework that sort of holds this whole thing together. And in a word, it's covenant. It's covenant. That's one word that, that summarizes the theological framework for the Old Testament. There's a number of covenants in the Old Testament. We won't touch on all of them, but I want to touch on the major ones and show how they connect to each other. These covenants address man's need, a, man for, a need for redemption. It starts with the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, we see these repetitions of a promise that God calls Abraham to go. He promises to bless him, make him great, give him many, many descendants, and give him a land, a place to call home. And God promises through this man and his family to bless all the families of the earth. And this is an unconditional promise. God swears that he will do this by his own name. And it's an eternal covenant without end and without exception. And this promise forms the theological framework for the rest of the Old Testament. You want to know why God rescues these, these people out of Egypt? Do you want to know why he feeds them in the wilderness? Why he gives them the land of Canaan? Why he protects them from enemies? Why he brings them back out of exile even when they've consistently worshipped idols? Why it is that he promises to restore them? It all goes back to a promise made to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a key theological framework for the Old Testament. It starts with the Abrahamic covenant. This moves God's purposes forward. A second key covenant, covenant is what we could call the Mosaic covenant. Some people call it the Sinaitic uh, covenant. It happened at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. And this covenant is different than the Abrahamic covenant and that it's never intended to be permanent and eternal. And secondly, that it is conditional. There are conditions for this generation of the Israelites to experience God's blessing. They are to abide by the law. God gives them, in in very gracious accommodation, he gives them a way to worship him. He says, you're a sinful people and I'm a holy God, but I'm going to provide for you a way for us to dwell together so that I can dwell among you. I want you to make these sacrifices, observe these feasts, avoid these sins, build me this kind of tabernacle, and if, if this happens, I can dwell with you in your midst without consuming you, and you can worship me and enjoy my blessing. But there was warnings that came with the Mosaic Covenant, that if they disregard God's law, if they refuse to worship him, if they compromise morally, if their worship is corrupted, then there's a penalty There is curses that come for breaking the law. This is a temporary and a conditional covenant. But still, it helps move the story forward. It makes it possible for this sinful nation to have a holy God dwelling in their midst. So don't see the Mosaic covenant as negative or harsh or restrictive. There's actually so much grace in the Mosaic covenant. And you'll see that when Scott talks about the book of Exodus There's a third covenant, and that's the Davidic covenant. You may be familiar with um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God makes a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, and that through him, this righteous kingdom would be established. We see here there's sort of a connection 
The Abrahamic covenant promises blessing. The Mosaic covenant forms a nation. The Davidic covenant makes a promise about the kind of man that would rule over this nation and make it possible for them to experience this blessing. In fact, the provision of this king is an aspect of the blessing. So the Davidic covenant is given out in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then finally, we have the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, and it's alluded to in a number of other places as well. But there's a problem. God promised to bless these people. He even promised to give them a righteous king and to establish a great kingdom for them. But they kept breaking the law of Moses. The problem was they had a hard heart. They couldn't keep the law. They wouldn't keep the law. So God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to take you into exile. You're going to experience judgment. But I'm going to restore you as a nation. And part of that restoration is going to be spiritual. I'm going to do something not just for you, by bringing you back home and giving you the land again, I'm going to do something in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you and give you a new heart. And that will cause you to know me and to worship me so that then you can enjoy all of the blessings that I promised to Abraham. All of the blessings outlined in the Mosaic law. And so we have this promise of a new covenant. And it includes forgiveness of sins. So these covenants address man's need. They, they, they speak to that need for redemption that we have. These covenants reveal God's character. He's a God of sovereign grace, but also a God who is holy and just. These covenants move the story forward. Anytime Israel is suffering, anytime that other nations come in and oppress them, anytime things seem to be going badly, it's because they violated the Mosaic covenant. Anytime God blesses them, rescues them, brings them back, it's because God is faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. So we see how this sort of explains so much of what happens in Israel's history. And it gives us the hope of what they were waiting on and what we need as well in the new covenant. The solution to this constant problem of our sin and our need for rescue and redemption. You see, all of these covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus brings the blessing of Abraham to us. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. Jesus is the son of David who's going to reign forever over God's kingdom. And Jesus is the one who inaugurates this new covenant in his blood. Jesus sat down at the Last Supper and he picked up the cup and he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We read right past that, not recognizing that that single statement communicates to these faithful Jewish men who are longing for their Messiah that God is fulfilling through the death of Jesus these promises, bringing the new covenant blessings to them through his death and resurrection. So if you understand these key covenants, that will help you understand the theological framework for the Old Testament. This is what God is doing, and it explains so much of what we see. So I hope that all of this uh, serves to not just excite you to attend Sunday school over the next year and a half or so. I hope this inspires you to go read your Bible. Uh, I hope this motivates you to see the value of the Old Testament and, and to feel uh, equipped to dive into it. Um, it's probably going to be impossible to read an entire book of we a week and keep up with our class, 
Although I, I commend you if you try to do that, some weeks will be easier than others. Jonah is shorter than Isaiah, so you might be able to do that sometimes. And I would encourage you to, if, if you have time and ability, uh, try to do some reading along with this class. Read through, through parts of the Old Testament, at least, with us. And I think that you will be blessed as different men from our church come and give us an overview of how each book fits into this story. How each book reveals to us something about God, something about man. How each book moves the, this, this redemptive plan forward and how they reveal to us God's covenant faithfulness. I think you'll be helped. I think you'll be encouraged. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm actually going to be teaching the next two weeks, which I'm excited about. I get to do Genesis, which is one of my favorite books. And having preached through it in the past, um, I was excited and said, I'd love to just do that one. So after that, Scott's going to do Exodus, and we'll be off to the races with a number of men who will be teaching. I look forward to that. hope you do as well. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed to be back here at 1030 for worship. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Um, I pray that this class, as we march through these books over the coming months. I pray that this class would help to equip believers in our church to know the Bible, to know you, to love you more, and to respond in faith to all that is written on the pages of Scripture. May you be glorified as we embark on this journey together. Amen.